You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. You, you and I were chatting before we kind of started hitting the record button, but um, I want you to elaborate on something because you, you verbalized something I haven't heard too many people verbalize, and I, I, I totally understood what you were saying. You, you were talking about your time guiding, and I asked you if you're still guiding, and you're like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Um, what made you come to that realization, and why did you stop guiding? Um, well, to go back, in time a little bit. Uh, I would guide in the summertime between my university courses. So I'd, I kind of show up in May and kind of skip the first couple weeks of university. Not something I recommend, but uh, kind of going to September there. And I would guide kind of straight through those months. Um, the shop owners are a little older. So for the most part, I do a lot of the like the rafting trips. Um, and a lot of the, the trips we do are quite long. Like I'll some stretches of the rivers out there I'll float is like 17 kilometers or something. And to cover that water in like an eight, nine hour day is next to impossible. So I'd often get out of the water at like nine at night, have to like cook lunch and everything for the next day. So it got quite tedious and it took away from the enjoyment for me. And I would have just nothing left at the end of the year. I'd, I'd be gassed and I'd go back to school and my friends would be like, do you want to go fishing? And I'd be like, I'm, 100% not going to go. Like I don't, I didn't enjoy it anymore. It kind of took it away from me where I was, I felt like I was guiding even when I wasn't guiding. Right. Like my, like everyone around me just knew that I was a guide and they just wanted me to like help them learn how to fish. And I just, I, it took away what I used to enjoy doing. Yeah. I think, just fishing with. I think that's always a danger and that's that probably stops a lot of people from jumping, you know, headfirst into whatever they're passionate about. Because when you make it your career, it, it, you know, if it's your getaway, so you just verbalize that. It's your getaway, you know, it's your kind of serenity. And then all of a sudden, all this pressure's on you. I got to produce. I got to get big fish. I got to get these guys into a fish of a lifetime. Uh, we can't get skunked. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of expectations. And I find that a lot of times is, it, that's a tough part of fishing. It is. And it, it, it's very refreshing when, like, you, you would get clients that come and they're like, oh, Sam, I totally understand fishing is fishing. Like, it's not about the numbers. I just want to do this float. I want to see this section of the river, and I want to learn some stuff. And usually those guys end up having one of the best days because their expectations weren't high. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com. Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Stoked you chose to join us tonight. And we're going to head to the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, Kelowna, to be specific. We've got Sam Grenier on the line. Now, Sam, 
Well, he works at Troutwater's Fly and Tackle in Kelowna, British Columbia. He uh, is a former guide at the uh, Crow's Nest Cafe and Fly Shop. And uh, he's also uh, freshwater science. He's studying at UBC. So I thought he sounded like a pretty good guy to come on the show. We just happened to cross paths. Hey, Sam, thanks for coming on the, the podcast tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so the format on my show, I always like to kind of hit the rewind button and take it back kind of to your roots and kind of how you find out how you came to discover fly fishing. So if you look back um, at your history on the water, where did the, the passion, the stoke for fly fishing start for you? Um, okay. It doesn't, it doesn't go back too far. I'm not too old for those <laughs> listeners out there. Um, uh, but basically, uh, it's kind of like a, a muddy past. Um, I kind of stumbled across my dad's fly fishing gear when I was a kid, probably 12 or 13. Um, and I think I was just going through his stuff cause he was moving out and for your listeners, it's not a terrible story. A lot of parents divorce and stuff like that, but, uh, bunch of stuff was kind of moving out and I was like oh fly fishing would be cool and uh one of my good friends uh his name is Florian and uh his neighbor took him out and they caught a couple fish and we were on the same swim team when I was a kid and he was like oh let's go out to uh the local BX Creek here in Vernon oh yeah and went out and he gave me like a little stick with like a piece of line on the end and he tied up these like little wet flies and I probably caught like 10 or 12 little little rainbows and I just remember free falling from there and just googling on like the school computers with them like looking what lakes our parents could take us or like how we could get a ride to the lake on the weekend and just like fish cheese off a dock even yep. like we were just wanting to get out but uh yeah it kind of started from there and uh after high school I got offered a job uh, to guide out in the crow's nest there and I was actually supposed to be the shop boy in the first year but uh, the guy that was supposed to guide kind of fell through with the owners and I went from shop guy to the main guide within like two or three weeks and uh, I'd never caught a fish on a dry fly really yeah Did yeah so I had to learn pretty quick Oh, sorry. You said you never had until I'm like, <laughs> you're guiding. I'm pretty sure you've done that a few times. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Oh yeah. Now, now I can say I've like probably hundreds and thousands of fish on dry flies, but yeah, I remember telling my first clients and they're like, how long have you been guiding? And I was like, ah, just lying through my teeth, just faking it till you make it. I think. So tell me how, like, so obviously if you're, if you were guiding at the crow's nest now, are you are you guiding on the Crow's Nest River? Are you doing the elk? What systems are you would you be guiding in out there? Um, because of the restrictions in the elk there, it being like classified waters and a lot of the shops needing like rod days and stuff like that, I would only do specific trips for other shops when they needed an extra guide or something like that. Because I was a BC resident, I could get like my um, assistant guides license and still work in Alberta. It, it, it worked out that way. But for the most part, um, maybe breaking down the season, uh, I'd get there in like mid-May after my university year. And I'd guide kind of June, beginning of July on the Crow. Uh, the Crow is probably my favorite river in the world. Uh, the fish in there are wicked. 
but as the crow warms, it gets quite difficult. And for the average fisherman, it is the most technical water probably southern Alberta has. Hmm. Uh, so I kind of moved to like the cooler cuddy streams of like the old man or the castle, uh, kind of towards the end of July, August and beginning of September before I went back to school there. Yeah, cool. Well, it sounds like even your schooling is kind of fishing related, if you will, as far as freshwater science at, at UBC. Um, we'll yeah. get in. We'll get into that. I, so it sounds to me like so you grew up in Verdon. You kind of sounds like you really got into things uh, at the Crow's Nest Cafe and Fly Shop, guiding and and hitting some some beaut uh, streams and creeks out that way. But um, mm-hmm. w- one thing I like to ask is, who did you learn from along the way? So if you had to cite some influences that have been you know pretty big on your learning curve who, who would you look to um honestly i would frequent kencraft more than i'd like to admit as a kid uh me and my good friend that i talked about earlier florin we would we'd ask like sandy the owner or uh there's a kind of a retired employee there his name's rod yeah. and he would just we would just bug him and like day over day ask him like how to fish, what to do, where to go. Um, at the same time, I think we watched a lot of like Brian Chan stuff and Phil Rowley on the lakes because most of what we have here in the interior are just still waters. So we kind of picked it up from there. Uh, lots of YouTube watching those guys online trying to piece things together. But uh, as we got more success, we kind of just went off experience. Mm-hmm. It was just... Uh, like a free-for-all like we'd, we'd see one chronomid pattern and then we'd do like the stomach pump thing and we'd see all these bugs and it just kind of went from there sounds like you've been hanging around a lot of fly shops for quite a while <laughs> yeah yeah I definitely can, i can relate so i want to take a few minutes to get to know you in and around uh you know the Kelowna vernon area Are you ready for a few random questions yeah all right man tunes let's talk music when you're driving uh whether it's your favorite still water or your favorite moving water what are you playing on the stereo um to be honest i listen to a lot of podcasts it's probably why i recognized you in the shop there um i actually listen to your podcast for a long time maybe cool. maybe that makes me like a fanboy or something but uh uh other than that well, you i may- listen to you made me laugh because I, I I just happened to be talking to somebody and you're like, hey, do you have a podcast? I'm like, that's a random question. <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted you there. Go ahead. You listen to oh, it. Oh, no worries, no worries. Um, uh, but for music, uh, I wrote a little note down because I have horrible memory. Um, most of what I listen to is alternative rock or classic rock. I have like a turntable at home and I love spinning like old vinyls when I'm tying flies or yeah, cool. Just hanging out, drinking a beer. Yeah, I get that. Um, speaking of flies, what would be one go-to pattern, Sam, that if you're reaching for more often than not? Now, I sh- we should probably say let's let's go with still water first. So, if you're fishing still water, still water. In, in the Okanagan, say, or in the interior uh, towards Kamloops, what fly are you reaching for? Um, I think four years ago, I probably would have said like a leech, probably like a balance leech or just a, a straight hook leech uh, probably something in like the size 16 or 14 something small uh it always seems to be like a go-to marabou or maroon leech um but now i would say probably a blob or a booby mm. 
Yeah. It's amazing how those, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it's amazing to me how those flies, like they just kind of came from out in left field, but you know, you know, what was mm-hmm. something funny. I, I, I was in England and I bought a fly fishing book. I don't know, 25 years ago, and it had blobs and boobies in it, but they weren't called that. They were called something else. And I started looking back, and I'm thinking, how many patterns have I missed over the years? But, um, yeah, you, yeah, how do you fish? If you're fishing a, a blob, how do you fish that? Are you under an indie, or are you stripping it? What are you doing with it? Yeah, so for blobs, um, if I'm going to strip something, it's going to be like, the booby with the foam eyes i just like it kind of mimics like a dragon dragonfly nymph to me or like a a darner or something but uh if i'm gonna fish a blob i'll fish it with a tungsten bead i just want it to hang like vertically straight uh right under the indicator um and for the most part i'll i'll throw it like mid water column a lot of the time like change it up if i've got like one rod with like a leech or an indicator just off the bottom i'll throw that blob just at random depths yeah just experiment. You want to, hear, want to hear something funny? I was on a lake um, two months ago. Just There was still ice on the lake, actually. We were fishing. About 20% of the lake did not yeah. have ice on it. It was a local pay lake. And I will tell you that uh, yeah. Buddy got into a huge fish. We landed it. it. It had, after we released our or his hook, it had another hook in there, and it was a tungsten bead blob, kind of chartreuse. <laughs> and I thought, okay. Yeah. Big fish like these got a tie, but yeah, it's uh, totally yeah for sure. I, and I, you know what? I never would have thought of putting a tungsten bead on it. I don't know why. I'd, the ones that I had purchased in the past or tied up didn't have beads, but <laughs> I'm a believer now. Yeah. Let's um <laughs> let's talk about your favorite place to talk fly fishing. I have a feeling you got a few, Sam. Um, you know whether it's the the shop you're working at, whether it's online. Where's your favorite place to get your fix when you're not in your waders? Um, well, I would say trail waters, but I am usually busy helping customers, so I can't chat the, the details of fly fishing too often. But uh, usually after work, if we like, usually the shop, I try to get the guys to do like a tying night on Facebook or something like that. So usually it's probably one of those group chats nowadays, especially with the COVID thing. Can't yeah. group up and drink beers together, but yeah. Yeah, makes it's sense. It's online these days, sadly. So let, let's talk sports. Uh, it sounds like you've done a lot of swimming, so I assume you're a sports guy. Would you be, uh, are we talking Canucks? Uh, are we talking Seahawks, Lions? Um, who do you pull for uh, in the in the sports world? Um, actually I, since I grew up in Vernon, me and my dad would always go and watch like the Vernon Vipers, like a BCHL hockey stuff. Um, when it comes to the NHL, sorry, you're, you're breaking up. Are... Sorry. I, I, Vernon who? Uh, <laughs> no, I, like, uh, you got to realize I'm a V's fan. So just, just take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> sorry. But... Oh no, no, no worries. No worries. <laughs> it's a wicked rivalry. I, uh, I totally understand that. No, I, a lot of nothing yeah, but respect for vipers fans because i'll tell you you guys are hardcore yeah i remember just being in the in the stands when the when the v's would come and play the vipers and it was like my favorite games even if we won or lost it was always there's a lot of emotion in the game so i i always liked that oh man yeah for sure well you guys used to have that fan bus that would come down and yeah it yeah uh, it'd get good 
So, so what about professional? What about professional wise? Who do you follow? Um, I'm a huge fan of the Jets. Actually, most of uh, my grandparents and most of my cousins live in Winnipeg, and for some reason, I just uh, I love like players like Patrick Laine, like uh, I forgot what the guy's name was, but he's the big enforcer on the team. Oh, and uh, I always... Bufflin. Hello, Dustin Bufflin. Oh yeah, yeah, someone like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah Bufflin. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. I when he used to play, like that was that was my favorite. Just yeah. watching him motor people around. They always seem to have a real tough guy on that team when you go back yeah. over the years. Yeah. Um, if you had to look at your fly fishing journey thus far, what's the biggest takeaway? What's the biggest lesson that you've kind of come to realize since you started fly fishing that it kind of brings to to your to your world? Um, I think the biggest lesson I've learned from from fly fishing for the most part is to definitely take a deep breath. I know a lot of guys will see like a rising brown trout or like a big rainbow and they just want to like cast to it right away. But watching it's like feeding pattern or just taking a moment to appreciate the surroundings and the situation that you're in. I think it, I think it, it, it helps me in the real world, especially in like more kind of high anxiety situations or, Mm -hmm times that are really stressful to like take a step back for a second and i i kind of just have a flashback to like days on the water when i'm super excited to cast out that fish or a steelhead like is grabbing my swung fly and my heart skips a beat (laughs) and i i'm able to just relax with that a little bit more which is nice yeah i get that i i do have anxiety i i it pops up once in a while in my world and i'll tell you uh, without fly fishing, I don't know what I'd do because that's it's one way to just get away and just not think about much else, and you just kind of focus on it, right? Yeah, and that like that's the thing with why like not guiding anymore is so nice. Like I, I it took me a long time afterwards to enjoy fly fishing again because I, like like you said, it's it's so rewarding being able to like take your family or your friends who just start fly fishing and show them like a good day on the water. But when you have clients that are like, Oh, I want to catch a 20 inch cutty or I want to do this and that. And those expectations are, are just too far stretched for a single day on the water. You almost like you need a week here or something like that to, to make that happen. It, uh, it puts a lot of pressure on you and it kind of, it takes away from the sport. You, you and I were chatting before we kind of started hitting the record button, but um, I want you to elaborate on something because you, you verbalized something I haven't heard too many people verbalize, and I, I, I totally understood what you were saying. You, you were talking about your time guiding, and I asked you if you're still guiding, and you're like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Um, what made you come to that realization, and why did you stop guiding? Um, well, to go back in time a little bit. Uh, I would guide in the summertime between my university courses. So I'd, I kind of show up in May and kind of skip the first couple weeks of university. Not something I recommend, but uh, kind of go into September there. And I would guide kind of straight through those months. Um, the shop owners are a little older. So for the most part, I do a lot of the like the rafting trips. Um, and a lot of the, the trips we do are quite long. Like I'll some stretches of the rivers out there I'll float is like 17 kilometers or something. And to cover that water in like an eight, nine hour day is next to impossible. So I'd often get out of the water at like nine at night 
have to like cook lunch and everything for the next day. So it got quite tedious and it took away from the enjoyment for me. And I would have just nothing left at the end of the year. I'd, I'd be gassed and I'd go back to school and my friends would be like, do you want to go fishing? And I'd be like, I'm 100% not going to go. Like I don't, I didn't enjoy it anymore. It kind of took it away from me where I was, I felt like I was guiding even when I wasn't guiding. Right. Like my, like everyone around me just knew that I was a guide and they just wanted me to like help them learn how to fish. And I just, I, it took away what I used to enjoy doing. Yeah. I think, just fishing with. I think that's always a danger and that's that probably stops a lot of people from jumping, you know, headfirst into whatever they're passionate about. Because when you make it your career, it, you know, if it's your getaway, so you just verbalize that it's your getaway, you know, it's your kind of serenity. And then all of a sudden, all this pressure's on you. I got to produce, I got to get big fish. I got to get these guys into a fish of a lifetime. Uh, we can't get skunk. There's yeah. a, there's a lot of expectations. And I find that a lot of times is it, that's a tough part of fishing. It is. And it, it, it's very refreshing when like you would get clients that come and they're like, Oh, Sam, I totally understand. Fishing is fishing. Like, not about the numbers i just want to do this float i want to see this section of the river and i want to learn some stuff and usually those guys end up having one of the best days because their expectations weren't high versus the guys that came from the states or something we had a lot of american clients and they'd be like oh i heard there's no crowds out here and the fish are huge and i'm like they are but they're not they're not dummies you're not just gonna throw a flop cast and and see that 20 inch cutty or cut bow rise to your dry fly mm-hmm. yeah no it's they're, true they're educated fish what was the biggest challenge that you had when it came to guiding like if you had to look back at your time uh on the crow uh or you know area rivers out there what was your you know the toughest thing for you when it came to dealing with clients or, or the um, fishing it was it was trying to i would say like, like being patient was the hard part. And like a lot of guys would, would thank me for being patient at the end of the day. And like, I know it, it sounds like that's your job. You're getting paid all that money to be patient, but like day after day when the sun is beating on you and your baby, like basically it's like, I would almost consider guiding like babysitting adults kind of thing a lot of the times. And like, it would, it would be to the point where like sometimes they would try to cross the river where it was higher than waist deep and they're trying to do it all by themselves. And I'm like, you might die trying to do that. And it's basically like having the patience to, to deal with that kind of stuff and that kind of behavior. It, I like, I don't think it's, I have so much respect for guides that do it for, for a livelihood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always think too, you gotta be kind of part psych psychiatrist or uh, maybe that's the wrong word but you're dealing with different clients from all walks of life and you've got to be like a chameleon you've got to be able to put okay i'm putting on this hat today or i'm putting on my business hat or i'm putting you know what i mean like you, you got to talk to them where they're at and that i'm sure that would be a challenge yeah um that just reminded me one of my favorite things to tell clients um and this goes back to like trying to make their day or like kind of make the day more enjoyable was that fish are either one of two things. They're either big or they're beautiful. So if you, they catch like a small fish, you tell them that it's beautiful. Like, oh, this is a beautiful fish. Right. And if they catch a big fish, it can be big and beautiful, but it has to be one of those. <laughs> I like it. That's good. 
Um, hey, what's the best job you've ever had? Are you are you doing it now in the fly shop at uh, Trout Waters, or like, is there a job you've done in the past that you went, wow, that was a a pretty good gig? I I I would have to admit that my guiding stint in the crow's nest pass like was my favorite job. As much as I like, maybe listeners now are like, why is it his favorite job? But I I've learned so much. I grew so much doing that being able to interact with people every day um kind of took me out of like the the maybe more shy uh introverted self i used to be and and helped me kind of grow as an adult Hmm. um so i would say guiding was my favorite job as much as i don't want to do it anymore yeah no that's that's well put um i want you to take us through your dream day on the water so now that i mean you've got all these uh you know, epic river stream days under your belt, but, uh, and now you're kind of more in a, a still water region where you grew up and I'm sure you're pretty familiar with the waters of the interior, uh, of British Columbia, but mm-hmm. walk us through your dream day, Sam. So if you had to go, okay, this is, this is how I want it to set up, you know, the weather, the fish you're chasing, the type of fishing you're doing, um, paint us a little picture on that. Um, I, like like you said, I am from the interior, but what I was able to start doing a couple years ago, um, since I graduated from school, uh, I think last two springs ago, um, was that I was able to finally do a little bit of steelhead fishing. Uh, and I was up with my friends last fall, and one of my favorite days on the river was the weather was the shittiest it could be. It was pouring rain, windy, freezing cold, and... I realized that there was no jet boats on the river. There's no other guides or real other rafters. Everyone kind of just held out for the day. And me and my buddies, I think we we hooked a couple fish, which is really sweet for steelheading. And just watching that line kind of swing across the run, you don't have to have a fish on the end or it doesn't have to be like a tug, but just having that serenity and that peace and quiet. It's yeah. almost one of my favorite parts about fly fishing these days. Cool. So is there, uh, is there a campfire at the end of the, of the day? Uh, what kind of yeah. me- meal you have yeah. what are you drinking? Um, we're, uh, we're not, we're not the rich type. So usually it's cheap craft beer, maybe like a caribou, uh, <laughs> lager yeah. or something like yeah. that. Honey, yeah. honey brown is, uh, is my favorite. Yeah. Uh, but usually the, the, there's a campfire. We camp just outside of, uh, if people know this, uh, Smithers has a little creek called, running through called Chicken Creek. And right along the bank there, we kind of posted up shop. And we, we had all our trucks together. We'd have like a little makeshift tent and we'd tie flies underneath and and make our little pasta dinner, like ramen noodles. That and, sounds uh, we'd cool. have a little campfire, pass out. That, that sounds and, all right. Uh, actually, because we're talking, yeah, and because we're talking about this, in the morning, uh, our wake-up rich- ritual um, was listening to some R. Kelly trying to wake everyone up. <laughs> yeah, and hey. that, that, that's one of my favorite memories. That's cool. So you spent a lot of time in the Smithers area? Um, I think this last season was my second time there, and it's it's definitely a true treasure in B.C., I think uh, anyone that can make make some time up there and, and get to experience just a little fishing, whether they're salmon fishing or steelhead fishing, it's well, it's I, it's unreal. 
I was doing a little bit of homework on you, and your name came up with uh, some Adams River articles and some uh, some environmental stuff. So it sounds to me like you're well on your way in, in the profession you're kind of chasing is right up, kind of right in the sweet spot where you want to be. Yeah, um, I would I would love to call that place home. <laughs> that Adams River thing is, is, is a funny thing, though. Talk, talk to me about that. So um, the Adams River, do you spend a lot of time on, on that system? Um, I would say the Adams River is probably like one of my old stomping grounds. When I was uh, probably 14 or 15, a gentleman in the Kencraft fly shop told me about fishing for trout uh, that were eating salmon eggs on the Adams River. And he said that you could you could have amazing days, blah, 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 all this like, you know how fishermen lie telling me that there's like, you can get a hundred fish day. I was like, Oh, no way. <laughs> so me and my buddy got my dad to drop us off at seven in the morning. I think one weekend, mid October or something like that. And we got all the kind of like scraps and material kind of put together. And yeah, it is, it is one of those, those special places. It's like, my friends always call it like the mini Alaska. Like when you get to fish that river, uh, the trout go from intelligent, smart little fish to like kindergartners and they'll eat anything that's floating by kind of thing and yeah. there's some impressive fish in the Adams River but what happened this last fall was that um, I was actually eating lunch with my girlfriend uh, at the day use section of the provincial park there and some of the uh, kind of tour guides came up and they're like hey, like we've been having issues with uh, fly fishermen kind of walking through salmon reds and, and kind of not knowing what they are. And we feel like they're ruining the the fishery or the, the salmon return by kind of causing damage to the few salmon that come and continue spawning in the Adams River. And we kind of had a long talk um, about maybe working on communication with anglers that were more beginners and stuff like that. And what they ended up doing a couple of days later was submitting a letter to, I think it was the Department of Fisheries and Oceans asking for an angler ban uh, from the month of September through November, which is pretty much the prime fishing period for fly fishermen in that area. Right. Um, and I, I replied saying that that wasn't what we discussed. Like I even talked to the, to the head of that, uh, Adams River Salmon Society and I was like there's alternatives like fly fishermen aren't the aren't the issue like for the most part if you talk to a lot of us we're very conservation minded we care about the fish we care about all that um, and they disregarded that they sent that letter and actually uh, a gentleman from the Salmon Arm Observer called me uh, and he pu published an article in kind of a I'm not like I think he tried it in like a non-biased yeah, non-biased uh, form for the most part, but yeah, I read that yeah. article. I read that. I could tell though you're pretty passionate about it, and you know, I got a, a full disclosure. I spent a lot of time fishing that system years ago. Haven't been up there in a long time, but I'm talking back in yeah. the those some of those giant runs back in the '80s and '90s, and right when belly boats came out. I remember. Oh yeah. You know, you know where the river just drops to the lake. It basically goes from knee deep to uh, 150 feet or whatever it is i i, I yep. it's deep so we used to just kick around there and just troll egg patterns and flesh patterns and you'd never know if you'd get a you know a, a 
a big sockeye all of a sudden take a swipe at it for whatever reason or or uh you know one of those 10 15 plus pound rainbow out of Shushwap lake i mean that was a crazy crazy yeah. time and i we i i've been towed yeah. around that lake in my belly boat back in the 80s uh, a lot and yeah. I just, I stopped going because it, it was getting busy and there's not a lot of room for a lot of people. You got to kind of fish the main lake, but it's, um, it's an yeah. amazing system uh, for, for those. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, yeah, just talking about the belly boat thing. What we, what we often do is throw a raft in and we actually raft down the river. And so we're able to fish like the, the non kind of public access side. Um, just from the bank there and that that still provides uh, like some great fishing I never hooked a 15 pound plus rainbow but the well, dream's still there I mean there's some that's the, the beautiful thing about wherever these um, salmon systems enter big bodies of water there's big fish waiting for mm -hmm. whatever's coming down and whether it's a lake trout or a, a rainbow trout or I mean there's there's a lot of nitrogen, a lot of feed, and and that's where those fish grow for sure. And that salmon, that salmon system, we had there's a big run just a few years back, but it's kind of up and down and all over the map. I remember going up there as a kid, and it was just red. It was just a sea of red. You you know, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and every fourth year, in, it's uh, still pretty good, right? Yeah, and uh, actually, I think 2018 was the last good run they had, and yeah. I remember floating it in a raft and like prime time mid-october and we caught one fish in the whole river and we're like what's going on salmon are making reds across the river you could walk across their backs pretty much and we caught one rainbow hmm. and what we just dis discovered after was that the because the sockeye are so aggressive against those those trout that are kind of feeding on their eggs is that a lot of the trout hold back until quite a quite a few of those sockeye die off before they push up into the river and so we had we had good fishing until like beginning of December that year. Yeah, well, that's that was what I found is the key was to go late, like uh, kind of after, yeah. and then those flesh flies start working because the salmon start breaking down, and there's still eggs floating, mm -hmm. and uh, like any salmon system where it enters a river, or the ocean, you you can have some fun doing that. Um, we're we're chatting yeah. today with um, Sam Grenier. Now Sam is uh, studying freshwater science at UBC. Uh, he works in the shop in Kelowna at uh, Trout Waters Fly and Tackle, and that's uh, that's a popular hub in the Okanagan Valley for sure. Uh, he was a former guide at the uh, Crow's Nest Cafe and Fly Shop. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the type of fishing you're doing now, Sam. So um, what's your go-to setup? Are you doing a lot of still water stuff now? or like Describe yeah, your um, typical fishing but... for me. But because I would leave in, in May to go guiding, um, now that I'm not doing that anymore, I have those summer months to to go chase big stillwater trout. And it's it's enjoyable for me because uh, it's something that I'm fairly, I would say, mediocre at. Like, I, 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 I do get skunked some days. I don't think people should be afraid of being skunked. It's, it's one of the best learning curves that I... I I have I happen to have uh, this last year. Uh, some of the shop guys said one of the local lakes was fishing good on crannies, and I I went up and crannies were not happening, and water boatmen were flying out of the air. And this was like mid 
mid-May, and I was like, okay. And I only caught three or four fish that day, but being able to decipher that while all the other anglers stick to crony fishing, sitting in their boats, twiddling their thumbs, that was that was the most exciting part. Was not was not catching the fish, but kind of figuring out what they're eating and matching the hatch in that way. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're saying. What what were you fishing out of? Like what are you fishing out of these days? Are you in a pontoon? Are you in a you know a, a flat bottom wide kind of craft? What are you fishing out of? Um, so I started out with the belly boat, uh, and the neoprene waders and the little flippers. I got a pontoon boat a couple years after that and quickly saw that it was a huge improvement. And then mm-hmm. I was looking at guys in flat bottom John boats. And a couple years ago, I found one on uh, Facebook Marketplace there, and it is revolutionary to be able to stay dry in a boat. So I just have a little 10-foot flat bottom. Uh, I think it's a 1040 low. Yep. Uh, and I've put, like, carpet in the bottom. It's got a little fishing buddy and nothing fancy with the double anchor system. And uh, I use lawn chairs because uh, I don't have enough <laughs> financial means to deck it out and put crazy boat chairs in there so just lawn chairs <laughs> you got to start selling more fly fly equipment um i i get you know what i just did man i just uh i just did a big 360 so i've been fishing out i had a backwater boat and i had a, a dave scadden pontoon boat and like you i was fishing out of a belly boat for years and i've got i've got mm-hmm. a bigger aluminum boat but i i just ordered a uh, uh what is it it's a nine and a half foot journey and man, oh, okay. I am stoked to use that thing. It's like, I, I know what you mean when you say those, you know, you're talking about like the, uh, the lows or the, what's, what's the one you sell on the shop? The Spratly, right? Oh, the Spratly, yeah. Yeah, those are beaut. I mean, they're, the beam is so wide on those things. You can stand and cast, yeah. you know, without being in the water. But it, I think that really is going to revolutionize fishing uh, on still water, small still mm-hmm. water. What do you think? Yeah. I I definitely agree. Um, I I do like the journeys and like the lows. The Spratlys, I get guys that call me in the shop a lot and they're asking me like, how heavy is that thing? And it's it's a beast. Like it is not a light little boat. I think it weighs like 150 pounds for like a nine footer or like a 10 footer, which is which is heavy. Like I would not put that in the in the back of a truck or anything. It'd probably be on a trailer for sure. But the nice thing about that is it's not thin, right? So I find sometimes if the aluminum's too thin, it flexes. Yeah. So um, like you say, if you have it yeah. either, or they have that wheel system too, which is pretty pretty slick. I got a couple of buddies with Spratleys, and they just love them. But yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I, there, it depends what you're looking for, right? Um, it's yeah. amazing how lightweight, though, some of these boats are and, and how they are, stable yeah. they are, you know? Yeah. Flat bottom boats uh, for stillwater fishing or just something else. I mean, one of my good friends, he has like a, a, a Marlon and it's like, I think Phil Rowley fishes out of one yeah, and the does. 10 footer has like a 56 inch beam, like width, like from, yeah. from gunnel to gunnel. And I, it, it, it feels like a barge when you're in there. <laughs> like it, it's just yeah. like a, it's like a dock on water. Yeah. I love it. Like, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. When those when those first came out, I was looking at them, going, "Wow, that's uh, that's a, it's like one of those fat triploid fish. <laughs> it's as wide as it is long." Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah, is, is there anything yeah. about the pastime of fly fishing that you 
kind of like to see us do different? Or is there anything that kind of irks you with uh, what you're seeing today in fly fishing? So listening to your podcast in the past, this is one of my favorite questions that you ask. Um, and so I put a little thought into this one. And for a long time, uh, and this comes back to the Adams River thing, uh, what I'd like to see change in the fly fishing industry and maybe BC or Canada-wide uh, is that I'd like to see like a, a form of test or like an online exam before you get your fishing license. I see a lot of guys that misinterpret fish. They, they handle them poorly. Uh, they either don't know how to properly identify fish or, or use proper fishing techniques. And I find that a lot of the time uh, they kind of just, uh, I, they don't like, there's just a misinformation. Cause I feel at the same time, uh, if you can kill, kill animals as in like fish, but you don't need to take a test or sit in a class or anything. But in order to do that hunting, you have to go through a whole exam or like a two day, like PAL or a, like mm-hmm. a core course. Core, yeah. Um, and I feel like, I, like I don't I don't want to force anglers to sit through like a two day thing just to be able to fly fish. But I think that there should be like a quick 15 minute exam online saying like what's the difference between uh, like a, a dolly varden and a brook trout or like a, yeah. a trout and lake trout and just being able to like identify like some basic markers. So if they are caught or they they can't just like play domino away, there's there's no longer any excuse that they just didn't know or anything like that. Because it, it goes back to like the Adams River thing that fishermen didn't know what a red looked like. That's what me and the Adams River Salmon Stock like Society talked about is that anglers just don't know anymore like what a red looks like. They haven't been educated and they don't know. And I was like, how do we how do we circumvent this issue? Mm-hmm. And I wish just at the source we could maybe have like a quick twenty minute exam before you got your fishing license that that just kind of outlined that. Well, and you know what, too? Reading the regulations now is a lot bigger job than it used to be. It used to be that, you know, here's your mm-hmm. regulations for the whole state or the province. Now it's like yeah. well, it's broken down into regions, and it's not, you know, uh, an apple isn't an apple isn't an apple. It depends where you're at, depends how many fish you can keep, depends whether you need a barb, whether you need, you know what I mean? There's, you know, yeah. some a lot of places you got to fish barbless. A lot of places are catch and release. Um, it used to be like, you know, you could keep eight fish and that, that was the number in your head, but now it's either, you know, one under this size, one over that size or no fish. So it's, you definitely mm-hmm. have to do, you have to look at it. And do you know what I've found too, Sam, is since the regulations are all online now, people are like less likely to really sit down and read it. Like we, you, you probably remember this, I don't know, but we used to go and get your license. You get the book. It's a, it's a it's a yeah. physical handout here's your regulations now it's online people may or may not look at it and it's our duty mm-hmm. our duty to know it but i just think that not having a hard copy sometimes kind of hurts for some reason yeah and i like i don't i don't want maybe cos to be harder on anglers but i think at the same time that anglers and fly fishermen gear fishermen the whole lot should put more effort into being better stewards of the resource. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's well put. So, um, what's, uh, what's your 2021 looking like? Um, sounds like you got some more schooling coming in the works as far as your uh, freshwater sciences studies. Um, yeah. What do you got coming up? Um, so 
I'm just going to cross my fingers. Hopefully I get accepted to do a master's in uh, marine biology, more freshwater marine or freshwater biology, studying uh, the effects that global warming have on sockeye salmon here in BC. Uh, that'd be out of the University of Northern BC there. Um, and it'd be a two-year project studying more in the Quinell area, up in the kind of headwaters of the Fraser River studying uh, how sockeye salmon are able to thermoregulate with uh, warming waters, like where they move, do they sit in the lake longer, right. or do they go to colder tributaries before they actually migrate to their spawning spawning area. Hmm. That that sounds interesting to me because, I, I mean, with the water temperatures changing, um, it, well, you've seen it. I mean, they start going different paths. They start going different routes. They're, they're places they weren't before. And, you know, just because they were there in the past doesn't mean they'll, they will be. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah. I just... And, and from what, yeah, totally. And, and what current literature says in the scientific community is that for the most part, a lot of runs are going to be earlier or they're going to be later where, where they have access to a lake such as the Adams River. They have the Shushwap lake right there they're going to sit in the lake they're going to enter earlier and sit in the lake longer in order to kind of acclimatize to the warmer water they're going to use that that cooler water below the the top layer of that lake and just kind of hang out and conserve energy that way or for runs that don't have a lake for the most part what they're seeing is that they're entering later sorry like the 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 peak return in in rivers that don't have uh lakes or kind of they call it thermal refugia uh those runs are going to enter those the fraser river or other rivers in the pacific northwest uh later on Mm. into the fall kind of waiting for cooler rains or or just cooler weather to kind of signal the entrance into the into the river have you been keeping an, an eye on what's been going on with some of the columbia sockeye it's kind of exciting uh, what they got going on stateside and, and kind of yeah. up in the south end of the valley. Yeah, the uh, the whole Columbia stuff, it's it's a giant scientific experiment there. They they do a bunch of really interesting stuff that I, I try to follow along. But uh Yeah, well I'll tell you yeah. um, basically I mean and I'm I, I'm no expert. I just know what I read or, or see. And, and I, I've been seeing a lot of fish coming up and, and basically the, uh, the native tribes, um, both in the States in Washington state and in, in BC have got together and, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they've got fish through some of these dams that they weren't getting through. And all of a sudden, uh, salmon are coming back to places they weren't. And they're all the way into Okanagan Lake now, which is pretty cool. Because I think there's yeah. something like 13 dams between, the, you know, the mouth yeah. of the uh, Columbia and uh, and where they're going to spawn. So it's uh, it's a heck of a journey. And I well, and and so I watch those fish come through there because I I drive that drive every day, and you'll see them like mm-hmm. they'll they'll be just like chrome like in I want to say end of August. I start like if you go down to some of those weirs, you'll see them jumping up and there'll just be a silver ghost. And you're like, holy man. Cause I, I mean, yeah. I, I fished there for, uh, 40 years and I had not yeah. seen that until the last probably 10, 12 years, but yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's pretty wild what they're doing. I definitely. So Sam, is there, impressed. is there anything we haven't covered tonight that we should or anything, um, uh, you know, that we need to know what's, what's coming down 
you know, when you're fishing this year? Any trips planned? Uh, I'm pretty much keeping it local with the whole uh, COVID thing. Right. So for the most part, still water. Lots of still water. <laughs> We're probably Shannon first and then further up the hill. Yeah, Shannon. Now, last, this last year, because, because of COVID, uh, I fished it on Easter. And I have to say there's at least 50 boats on the lake, which is something that blew my mind. Wow. Yeah. There was, there was belly boats, pontooners, kayakers, like hard bottom boats, you name it. There, everyone was out there. I, I, I don't go fishing until things open up because that's the way it is now. Like there's, there's all of us out there that want access to the water. And when the ice comes off, it's always down low. It's always the same lakes. And those lakes are busy as heck. You can walk across the boats, but once they start opening up and, uh, you know, in the Alpine and whatnot, then, then people start moving around. But yeah, I, don't, I, I, I hear you on that. I remember a few years back we were fishing Shannon in February. It was like crazy. Wow. Yeah. Was hoping that is good. I was hoping this year might be like that too, but it's getting cold this week, so who knows? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Shannon is a, is a special little piece of water. There's large fish in there, so I do have to uh, frequent it once in a while when it's when it's one of the only ones frozen or unfrozen. Do you, but, fish, uh, you fish a lot of lakes in the Kamloops area up towards you know, um, Stump, I kind of started – yeah, I've started making my way out there. Um, you, you've had Brennan Lund on your podcast before. He's a good friend, so yeah. him and his gal we kind of meet up uh, uh, with me and me and my girlfriend, and we'll just kind of park the boats beside each other, kind of catch up. We'll do a little fishing, and uh, those lakes out there are they're a different class in the in their own. You know what's funny is I, I um first time I met Brennan was actually on the Okanagan River in the middle of winter. I was walking the dog, really? walking the dog, and I just randomly come around the corner and here's this guy in full on, uh, you know, uh, Patagonia gear, and he's got the fly rod. I'm like, what? This guy looks serious. What? I've never seen anybody serious fishing yeah. here before. But uh, yeah, no, he was. He's the first guy I had on the show, and uh, yeah, I have to get him back on at some mm-hmm. point. But it's amazing. Isn't it amazing how small a community it is? It's like everybody knows everybody. Oh, yeah, it is. Definitely. Yeah. I uh, I feel blessed to be part of fly fishing. It's it's an addiction and something. I Like I always say, like, it's something I'll do till I'm 90. I'm yeah. lucky enough to live that old. Exactly. Well, hey, Sam, keep up the good work, man, at uh, Trout Waters Fly and Tackle and, and helping the folks out in the shop and Hopefully we'll uh, see you out in the water wetting a line soon. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, it's uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to a chat tonight with Sam Grenier. He is studying freshwater science at UBC, works at Troutwater's Fly and Tackle in Kelowna, British Columbia, and is a former guide at the Crow's Nest Cafe and Fly Shop. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.